welcome to the NOLA Drink Show. Join us as we explore the world of drink, food, and culture in New Orleans and beyond. Here's your host, Brian Diaz. All right, everybody. Hey, welcome back to the NOLA Drink Show. Maybe I should say thanks for sticking with the NOLA Drink Show. Yeah, Brian Diaz here with you. Been a minute, hasn't it? Hey, it's uh, great to have you back. As you probably know, if you listen to the show on a regular basis or were listening to the show on a regular basis, um, we made some changes. I took a little break. The break I was planning on about three, maybe four months. Yeah, six months later, here we are. But it was all good. Just needed some time away from doing the show, which is just great. Uh, As you know, I pulled the show off the radio station at the end of 2022 because I just didn't want to be there anymore and just kind of concentrating... uh, the efforts here on the Nitty Grits Podcast Network, the podcast network for the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We've been working on that a lot. Along the way, I was actually taping some shows too, just taking advantage of people being in town and other things going on. And what I decided to do, I'll just do a little housekeeping here before we start in on things. Uh, I have four shows that are going to be coming out fairly soon that we've already taped, but I'm going to put them out in a little bit of a different order than chronologically. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start today with a really great show. We are chatting with author Marielle Sanji, and Marielle wrote a really fine book uh, on the absinthe frappe cocktail, of course, a legendary New Orleans cocktail. But there's so much more to the story, right? Because we're talking about absinthe, we're talking about cocktails in New Orleans. So her book is really fantastic. The drink, in a certain sense, is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. And so we talked to her about the book, uh, how she came to write it, and we get into the history of absinthe, we get into the history of the cocktail, some of the places that are famous for said cocktail. Really, really interesting story. It's part of the uh, LSU Press book series on bartending and cocktails. I'll touch on that after we close things out with the interview. And uh, yeah, got some really good shows coming up for you here. We're gearing up for Tales of the Cocktails. We've got your our annual, excuse me, Tales of the Cocktail preview. Eileen Whalen, who is their executive director, joins me. We taped that one pretty recently. We have our annual Turning Tables show uh, that we did a while back. That's going to be seeing the light of day pretty soon as well. We did a really good show that we taped towards the beginning of the year where we had uh, cocktail authors, uh, King King Cocktail, Dale DeGroff, and Philip Green, also who's penned a new book, uh, joins us. And then the second half of the show is awesome because we have two of the finest bartenders on the planet and certainly two of the finest bartenders in New Orleans join us for a little conversation. And that would be Chris Hanna and Abigail Gulo. So that's a really fun show that we taped way back when. So yeah, we got some really cool stuff coming up beyond that where you're going to be talking with some of the judges and organizers for the Tales of the Cocktail Spirits competition. They did it very differently this year. We touch on that in the show with Eileen. That'll probably be the next show that I bring you here in about a week and a half or so. Uh, We're going to be doing a show on sake. We're going to be talking about the music and hospitality scene in New Orleans and a whole host of other things. We'll be bringing you some Tales of the Cocktail coverage and that sort of thing as well. One other thing that I'll be bringing you, and I'm uh, very latent on doing this as well, had the opportunity to go uh, visit Spain and Italy not all that long ago. And the important part for this show, uh, that's part of this conversation, had a chance to really visit some amazing bars. Uh, We went to uh, Dry Bar in Madrid, which is one of the top 50 bars in the world, two other top bars in the world in Barcelona, being the famed Boatis, as well as the Caribbean Club. We found some really cool bars in Verona that are just up and coming and are going to knock your socks off. Wouldn't be surprised to see either or both of them in the top 50 bars sometime in the near future. So I'll be sharing some stuff on social with that and probably talking about it here and there and love to organize some shows with those folks that I met along the way. Just had a wonderful experience. So that was one good thing that 
that happened to me while we were taking a break. But it's really good to be back doing the show, friends, and uh, happy to be here. Thanks for sticking with us, as I said, at the top, and really excited to bring you our guest here, Marielle Sanji, talking about the absinthe frappe and absinthe. Brief break. We'll be right back with the featured interview. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Brian Diaz here with you. Thanks for listening into the NOLA Drink Show, friends. Happy to be here. Happy to be back at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum after some time. Getting back to doing the program for you all. Thanks for joining us. And uh, thanks to my guest, Marielle Sanji, who is an author, as I mentioned at the top of the show. And as she has recently put out a fantastic book on the absinthe frappe, a very important, iconic drink here in New Orleans that is connected, as I mentioned also at the top of the show, to a much larger picture of the world of absinthe. And Marielle has done a fantastic job not only talking about the drink itself, but digging into the history of absinthe and all things connected to it. So, Mariel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to meet you. And a uh, really wonderful book. I was telling you I had the pleasure of reading it uh, last night and this morning. It's part of the um, LSU Press series. Yes. On, and, and tell us a little bit about the series, and then tell us a little bit about you writing the book and how you always like to ask authors this, how and why. How did you find yourself doing, doing all this? Of course. So the series is called the Iconic New Orleans Cocktail Series. There are three other books in the series. The first was The Sazerac by Tim McNally. The second was The Cafe Brulot by Sue Strachan. And the third was The Vu Carré by Jean Demers. And mine is The Absinthe Frappe. And the series focuses on iconic New Orleans cocktails that originated in New Orleans. They were invented in New Orleans by New Orleans bartenders. And Jenny Keegan, the acquisitions editor of LSU Press, sent me an email asking me if I wanted to contribute to the series. And she included a list of iconic New Orleans cocktails like the Raffignac, Cocktail à la Louisiane, the Grasshopper, and the Absinthe Frappe. And the Absinthe Frappe really stood out to me because I enjoy absinthe and I wasn't as familiar with the history of it as I became as I researched the book. <laughs> Necessarily so. Right. <laughs> I, I, I liked it, but I wasn't as familiar with the background. But I, I did some preliminary research and discovered, wow, there's such an interesting history here. It touches a little bit of everything, science, art, and there's that undeniable connection to New Orleans. So I just thought it would be the perfect story and I, I figured I could get into prohibition and that aspect of it and I just thought it would be a really interesting um, journey. So it, and I'm assuming that because you were mentioning that you, you knew some about it and you enjoyed it mm-hmm. um, when you started to open I guess I'll use this term even though it's a bit cliche was it a bit of a Pandora's box when you started to get into it just because it is such a rich interesting I always like to say some of it said a hazy story like the Lucian and Absinthe you know where and so a bunch of mystery uh, was it kind of like oh man what did I get myself into a little bit or no I found it really it was really interesting I had no idea the number of artists who were influenced by it and we can go into it in a little while but I had no idea what led to the ban right I couldn't believe like (laughs) kind of this you know scandal of why it was banned and this ridiculous propaganda really I was so surprised to learn all of that but I really enjoyed diving into the entire history of it how, what, and Mariel, tell us a little bit about uh, how did you get into writing and, and how did you end up as an author? 
Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I've enjoyed writing my entire life. I felt that I always had a talent for it. But when I went to college, I went to college at UNO, University of New Orleans, and I went to college in 2001. So there was really no, there wasn't journalism the way it is now. If you wanted to be a journalist, you either wanted, you had to do it on television or you wrote for a newspaper or a magazine or something of that nature. The, it, was, it was, there wasn't as much internet writing. I'm sure, sure there was, but you had to have, you know, some kind of like connection and things yeah, like that. Right. So I majored in psychology. I figured I, that was something else that interested me got my bachelor's of science in psychology and decided to take a break before I went to grad school. And I began writing for local publications just kind of as a freelance thing like that. And it took off and I just, I continued with the writing. So I never made it to, I haven't made it to grad school yet. Okay. <laughs> right on. <laughs> and I've kind of put the psychology thing on the back burner for now, but yeah, it just, it's just something I've enjoyed doing my entire life that I've been able to make a career out of. Fantastic. This is fantastic. Yeah. Is, 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 this, um, how, is this your first book? This is my first oh, book. Oh, congratulations. Thank okay. you so much. Yeah. And it, it, it's a really wonderful book, friends. And of course, we'll tell you how to find it uh, towards the end of the show. But let's start here um, with the book itself and what you wrote about. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of absinthe. And, you know, as I mentioned to you before we went on the air, we've talked quite a bit about the spirit on the show. We could sit here for the next four or five, mm -hmm. six, seven hours, days, and, and talk about it. But maybe just kind of give us a bit of an overview. And your book is so filled with interesting anecdotes, uh, you know, where it comes from, its roots in ancient Egypt, its mm -hmm. roots as a medicine, uh, the, how it influenced the art community, as we noted, in Europe in the late 19th century. So maybe we can just cherry pick a few stories, because because we could just sit there and talk about Manet and Gauguin and sure, Baudelaire sure, and all sure. that for hours, and that just that in, in and of itself. But maybe just kind of give us the, the 30,000 foot version if you sure will. well the overall um, basic history of it is it was originally discovered by the Enriad sisters in the 1760s and as you said it was seen as a medicinal product and like so many things you know people realize Could I ask you a question real quick because this is an important thing that you said in the book that I, I'd love for you to sure. elaborate on because like most things that happened at that time some white dude took credit for it right so can you just g give us a little bit more on that part of the story about the sisters and and the individual the doctor was a doctor right sure there, there was a doctor named Pierre Ordinaire of course Ordinaire, and yeah. <laughs> which is an incredible name <laughs> but, um, he, originally it was believed that he was the one who discovered it and but the long story short is the Enriad sisters he got the recipe from them and so and it was discovered is the medicinal product that it could make you a little drunk and give you a little bit of a buzz mm -hmm. and so over time it took off and we'll fast forward to the 1860s in France and the Pernod Fees company started distilling it and distributing it to the people of France and it just it became a big thing and the interesting thing about that is when absinthe, <clears throat> excuse me, when absinthe first kind of started to take off, it was looked down on. It was seen as something that, oh, the lower dregs of society was drinking, you know, the riffraff. It wasn't seen as an upper crust sort of thing. But as time goes on, you know, you have some upper, this higher level of people discover it and they add their own touch to it, like fountains and fancy glasses and spoons and things like that. And they put their own touch on it, and it united poor and rich alike. And making about creating access or, or creating a market for a higher quality product, too, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. So, go ahead. 
I, oh, I was going to say, the yeah, the lower quality product had like sulfates and things of that nature in it. It wasn't, it, that wasn't made by the Pernod Fees company. The Pernod mm -hmm. Fees company was making true blue quality absinthe. But as it took off, no, no. as it took off, other companies, of course, wanted to cash in on that, and they weren't. They didn't have the wherewithal to make it the same way, so they added their own stuff to it that was no good. Got it. So I think I was a bit remiss here because I think most listeners of this show are pretty pretty knowledgeable people, as a lot of industry folks mm -hmm. and and just serious enthusiasts. Uh, so probably most folks out there generally know what absinthe is, but we should probably tell people in the classic sense what is absinthe. What are the key ingredients? Obviously, there's a lot of variation. Some of the secondary and tertiary things that are used, but right, it's fennel, anise, and grand wormwood <clears throat> that is distilled with an alcohol base, and the the herbs is what makes it green so mm -hmm. if you use green herbs it's going to be green they have blanche ab absinthe that's not made the, the green i'm getting a little twisted here but the green <laughs> the green is caused by chlorophyll in the herbs right so whatever okay. you make it with there's red absinthe that's made with hibiscus and things like that so whatever you so, Muriel, sorry, I'd go ahead and continue. I'd lost just the last couple things that you said. Sure. I was just saying whatever is distilled into the absinthe is what makes, gives it the color. So it's not always necessarily green, although green is the most common color of absinthe. You can also have white absinthe, and they do have some red absinthe. Right. Okay. Cool. Uh, so... Um, so we get to the 18, let's, let's cherry pick a few things here because we, we talked about how it influenced and was popular in the art community mm -hmm. in France in particular uh, in the late 19th century. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, many artists were influenced, such as Manet, Van Gogh, Paul, uh, Arthur Rimbaud, Paul Verlaine. And I think that a lot of these artists saw it as influencing their art. So not only was it a trendy product, they saw it as, oh, this is something that's going to add, you know, give an extra level to my art. And of course, like anything, you know, you look at, you could compare it to marijuana in a way that the people, like more creative people, you know, in the, in the LSD times in the 60s about, right, or, exactly. right, the sure. more creative uh -huh. artsy types are always going to go for like the new hip thing of the time. And that's what it was. That's what made it appealing. So, so people and people were they were consuming it in salons in Paris and in France and mm -hmm. having sort of meetups of arty types and yes. and producing art. So, I mean, we have paintings by Degas, we have paintings by several people. Mm -hmm. um, Van Gogh uh, did paintings that actually feature absinthe prominently as exactly. the subject of the painting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Van Gogh. Um, he has a very famous painting of a glass of absinthe and a carafe of water, which is how you prepared absinthe. You just add a little water to it to make it loose and get cloudy. And yeah, and he has a painting of that. And you know, there's, I, I cover in the book was, Van Gogh had a very sad story as we all know. And <laughs> so it's like, you know, the question is, you know, what caused his problems? Was it absinthe or was it madness? Well, the, the long and short of it was he had mental problems that had nothing right. to do with absinthe. Absinthe does not make you crazy. It doesn't make you hallucinate. It's just... Does it make you cut off a portion of your no, ear? No, no, no. <laughs> if you drink too much of it, it <laughs> right, might, you know, right, if you get a little right. drunk, but it's not because it has any... Inherently. Right. It doesn't have any um, drug qualities to it or anything like that, which is a big myth of course yeah and so let's let's move into that then uh and and again i'll tell folks that read the book because you actually go into a good amount of of detail and share a lot of interesting anecdotes about artists that were consuming absinthe and that just the influence that it had on the art mm -hmm. culture in, in france at the time 
But so we start to see there's a couple key events that are taking place in Europe uh, and really around the world. In, well, the temperance movement in certain countries, I'll say in the Western world. And, and then uh, a particularly nasty disease in the vineyards of France. And those two things yes. overlap to kind of create a perfect storm that kicked absinthe out of our exactly. world for a while. So as absinthe was gaining popularity, wine, which is, of course, what France is known for, they're having their own problems. And it's called the Great French Wine Blight. And what that is was an aphid called phylloxera that was destroying grape plants, the grapes used to make wine. And so as a result, the wine plants that they did have, the, the wine they were making, was expensive. So wine prices went up. Absinthe was more reasonable. So more and more people began drinking absinthe. And this is what the winemakers said. They said they were drinking absinthe in place of wine, which was never really the case. Wine was never, ever threatened in France. Right. But, you know, winemakers don't want anything cut in on their profits, even if it's a couple of, <laughs> couple of dollars. And you, you give that number, right? It's something like 70% of the alcohol consumed right, in right. France was, was wine never, and 3% was, was absinthe. Right. There was never any threat of like, oh, my goodness, we're not going to drink any more wine. It was never the case of that happening. So the winemakers got nervous and they started saying, okay, we have to nip this in the bud because absinthe is eventually going to cut into all of our profits and we're having these other problems with the phylloxera and this aphid. So they started, there was a doctor named Dr. Magnin who did experiments on animals. And there is a chemical in absinthe in wormwood called thujone. And he would pump thujone into animals and naturally they would die. Now, the amount of thujone he was pumping into these animals <laughs> was nowhere near what you'd ever find in a serving of absinthe or a bottle of absinthe, but of course, you know, they wanted to angle it as Thujone is dangerous. Thujone can kill you. If you have too much of it, you can die. You can seize up and die. Now, the fact of the matter is the alcohol and absinthe will kill you before Thujone does. But you have to keep in mind, this is like the late 19th century, early 20th, early 20th century. Nobody's paying attention to those details. They're just going by what this doctor is telling him. Right. So he's saying... Thujone is dangerous, absinthe is leading to alcoholism, and the winemakers were like, yeah, absinthe is leading to alcoholism. And, and, and I love the part, too, where the winemakers are, are also couching wine. You know, it's, it's cultural, mm -hmm. it's pure, it's fermented, it's, it's natural. Because it's fermented, exactly. And all this other distilled stuff is, yeah, right, exactly. And the, the, but the distilled stuff is bad. Right, like they <laughs> because they considered wine a part of the meal. Right, so right, So it's right, like, right. that's, no, that's not harmful. It's like, well, okay. And again, you know, people in those days, they were only, they only knew what they were told. They don't know one thing from another. So they're like, okay, maybe this is the truth. Mm -hmm. So the winemakers saw this experiment with the Thujon and they started saying well we need to ban it we need it needs to go and various other factors led to that as well let's do this Maria let's take a short break because I want to come back and we're going to continue with the history we're going to talk about the ban talk about prohibition and then we're going to talk more too just about the absent frappe and we're going to talk about how New Orleans plays a central uh, role in the whole story take a short break here friends come on back
right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us here. We are chatting with Mary L. Sanji, the author of The Absinthe Frappe, a very fine book about the drink. We're going to get to the drink in a little bit. Uh, we had to iron out a couple technical bugs, which we got squared away, and fortunately, everything seems to be intact for us. Uh, but, uh, Mary L., we were talking about the... We got in. We were kind of getting right up to where the ban took place in in Europe, in particular, mm-hmm. and then how that will get into how it kind of dovetailed to other parts of the world. Sure. Um, but so we've we've couched the story where we've talked about how, you know, distilled liquor, absinthe in particular, because of the way it was being portrayed, was an evil. It was a blight on society. Right. People calling mm-hmm. it, you know, lead to the uh, the decimation of French culture, so on and so forth. Uh, so then we had uh, we had a couple other watershed. We talked about phylloxera, where so we sort of kind of pitted the wine industry against absinthe and where they were going with this. But then we had a couple sort of a, how shall I say tabloid headline sure. news bits that uh, played into the story as well. Right. So this man named Jean Lafray, um, he, <laughs> he he was a, a, a married man with children. And he's, he did not seem like a very pleasant person. <laughs> Does not seem so. And a yeah, heavy drinker, obviously. A heavy drinker. So he got up one day and he had wine, brandy, absinthe. He drank all these things throughout the day while he was working, while he was, you know, going about his life. And he came home and he saw that the shoes that he had asked his wife to clean, I think, were not clean. And so she shrugged him off and that set him off. And he got a shotgun and he killed her and he killed his children. And he tried to kill himself but didn't succeed. Now, he had had a lot to drink that day. Brandy, again, wine, and he had absinthe too. But that was not... And coffee with brandy, right? So he's wired and drunk. Right, exactly. (laughs) But absinthe was not the only thing he had. But the tabloid, the newspaper at the time, said... Absinthe, he was drinking absinthe, that's, that's it, that's what drove him to murder his family, for, you know, forget everything else that he had drunk. And that was enough to, he was found guilty, he killed himself in, in prison, but that was enough to really push for an absinthe ban, because these politicians started saying it's bad for society, it's bad for the people, it, it's causing alcoholism, it's causing people to go crazy and do these crazy things, and it has to go. So, so they, they were, you know, we were talking about this previously that, you know, there are these underpinnings in these conversations happening. So this just sort of served as a poster child rallying exactly. cry event. They were looking for somebody, the politicians were looking for something to really push it over the edge. And that was it. You know, I, I, I'm sure if Magnin and all the, the experiments hadn't happened, if the winemakers hadn't been involved in their own way, if there hadn't already been some sort of like push against absence, that story probably would have been a blip in the news. And the temperance movement, too, which we, t- we touched on that, but that's movement, playing course, into this. Because, yeah. b- because he had absence that day, that was enough to say, OK, mm-hmm. we have to really nip this in the bud and do something about it. So then we're, we're now in the early 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. And so when, so then kind of what fell from there then? It was banned in, was it Switzerland first? Was that the first place uh, that I think? I be- yeah, it was banned yeah. in Switzerland first, and then it was banned in the United States in 1912, mm-hmm. which, you know, the ban in the, in the United States really wasn't that big of a deal because there were certain cities that did enjoy absinthe. New Orleans was the absinthe hub in the United States at the time, but San Francisco had an absinthe scene, at the, but it, nobody was really pushing against it 
in the United States because it just would ne it never took off the way it did in Europe. Mm -hmm. So it was banned in the United States in 1912, and then it was banned in France. So, and this this was and this is a question that I that I have for you here because you know obviously we're kind of the United States is following on the coattails of what had happened in mm -hmm. in Europe and basically just sort of looking at what their equivalent of FDA regulations sure. at the time were. And we'll get into that how that relates to the lifting of the ban later and and the ban how it came into place in the U.S. But I think also then when we overlay that with the temperance movement in this part of the world, this is really specifically the question, Meryl, I have for you, because this is one of the early dominoes to fall before prohibition. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, this was like the first kickoff to, I, I personally think that it was the way of testing the waters of like, okay, if we can ban this, maybe we can ban alcohol as a whole. And mm -hmm. that's what did eventually lead to prohibition. And one interesting thing that I did want to add is, you know, after prohibition was eventually lifted, all of these popular cocktails that were popular before prohibition and that had been popular at the time, those, they all came back. The one that didn't come back was the absinthe frappe and other absinthe cocktails because absinthe was still banned. Right. So right. it didn't really have that research. It didn't get to enjoy that resurgence that all of these other drinks and cocktails and famous the spirit drinks had so it kind of just got almost everywhere it got lost in the mm -hmm. shuffle and i think it's interesting too and, I, and and you noted this in the book that um when when it was banned in places like the united states but in particular switzerland france mm -hmm. uh in parts of europe that people started to make alternatives but people started to make bad alternatives and i still hear this story to this day like don't drink check absinthe because yes, it's yeah. not even absinthe <laughs> that is true well the thing about absinthe is there's no regulations on it so you can have anything you can have green colored vodka and you can call it absinthe right you have as long you have to check the ingredients on the label to see, to see that it says made with wormwood fennel anise otherwise it's not legitimate absinthe they have products out there that are $20 a bottle and they're labeled as absinthe or absinthe drink or something like that and it's not legitimate right so I would encourage your listeners who I, I know are smart people who are into cocktails and spirits to research a little bit and if it's on the cheaper side suspicious red flag red flag yeah right exactly because it, it's one of those things like we we talk about well we use pinot noir as an example from the wine world and people don't you know it's it's impossible to make a good bottle of pinot for twelve dollars <laughs> sure. because the grape is expensive it's usually cut with another grape or two mm -hmm. up to the legal limit that you're allowed to do that and not identify it and point being it's like producing pisco or producing mezcal producing something of quality in the absinthe world is just not possible to do at 15 or 20 bucks a bottle yeah exactly i mean imagine you know it's a really cheap bottle of whiskey it's never good it always burns right. you're gonna have a hangover <laughs> right. the next day <laughs> right. Not pleasant. <laughs> right, exactly. So we, we know the Prohibition story, January 1920, this comes into place, and, and then we have Prohibition lifted, and then you mentioned that, you know, for the reasons you just stated, that absinthe didn't make a comeback. Uh, and so, in, you know, we basically cruise along then for decades mm -hmm. uh, until... Uh, we get to the 1990s, probably, right? Yes. Mid-90s, where the story kind of picks back up again. So in the early 90s, a New Orleanian and a scientist named Ted Bro got a book about absence. And he didn't know anything about it, but he was intrigued. So he started doing some research. He got his hands on some pre-banned bottles of absinthe. And he was like, why was this banned? And, of course, he learned the things that we learned that because the thujone and, you know, oh, thujone will make you crazy. It'll make you sick. And he's like, well, how much thujone exactly is in 
pre-ban absence. And fortunately, he's a scientist. He has access to labs and the ability to do experiments that they couldn't do in the late 19th century. So he proceeds to do these experiments to discover how much thujone is indeed in absinthe, in the wormwood in absinthe. And he discovers that it's such small trace amounts of thujone that it's not harmful at all. And it's this aha moment of, oh my goodness, it was banned because of a lie, really. Just mm -hmm. this made up lie. So Ted, fortunately being the um, person that he is, decided that he was going to not only begin producing his own absinthe, but he was going to start working towards having the absinthe ban lifted in the United States so that absinthe could be produced and sold in the United States. Those were the regulations. Now, the, it, this happened in, it was lifted in March of 2007. The internet was a thing before then. So people could order absinthe off of the internet from other countries and have it shipped to the United States. I mean, nobody's going to come after you for that. But it could. Can, can, can I just real quick? Because one important, and you get to this, and I don't want to derail things, but sure. it was not. It was not technically. Like, there was never a law that was passed that said absinthe is illegal. These were regulatory things. Right. Exactly. It wasn't like heroin. Or right. Anything right. Like this that. was not a Schedule One drug or something. Exactly. Exactly. So essentially, you could order it off of the internet and have it shipped from Europe, and but it couldn't be sold or produced in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this was like an old, of course, since 1912 law. Um, regulation. Regulation. Yes, regulation. So Ted Bro began doing the work to have these regulations lifted. And on March 5th, 2007, his own brand, which is Lucid Absinthe Superior, became the first absinthe legally sold in the United States. And the one that followed very shortly after was Kubler Absinthe which was another um, brand that worked hard to... They're a Swiss brand, right? Yes, they're a Swiss and they were brand working at it at the same time. They were working on it at the same time. It was a very cons uh, con combined effort in a way, separate but combined. Right, and I was telling you before we went on the air, and you, friends, you can go back and um, look this up in the search field uh, on our show, there's a brand called the Fay Absinthe by George uh, Rowley. Uh, out of he's an English guy, uh, but out of France. And so similar things were happening on the European front, mm -hmm. sort of while all this was going on with Ted and and Kubler here in the states. Yes, and today Ted produces some of the best absinthe, really the best absinthe you can get, Jade Liqueurs. Mm -hmm. It's produced at the Comier Distillery in France with some of the same distiller distillers that were used at the Pernod Fees factory in the late 19th century and the ingredients that he puts in his absinthe the wormwood it's grown in the same place where the ingredients of that absinthe in the late 19th century so it's really the closest you can get and he's done so much research and he's done his best to reproduce it as closely as possible mm -hmm. so it's worth every penny if you look it up and it's a little bit more on the expensive side it's worth every penny it's the best you'll get you'll get it's really it's really very good it's one of my favorites mm -hmm. and and it's uh, yeah well it's 60 70 a bottle right mm -hmm. isn't it in that ballpark a little more than little that, more than but that now? like i said okay. it's worth it and you know he's a new orleanian so yeah there you go and, and he's one of the guys who made it so we could drink this exactly. stuff exactly it's, it's a very cool connection so it, it has been very recent that it, it really, you know, past 15 or so years that it's been, you know, broadly available to us in this country and really elsewhere. Uh, and it always strikes me, Mariel, when 
this happens where, you know, I, I still have conversations and just because I'm kind of close to this, I sometimes forget how people will react and how, how pervasive the mythology behind mm-hmm. it is because people that are not necessarily, you know, in this world, one, it surprises me how many, if you're not in this world, how many people have heard of it? Yes. But what they've heard of is like the horror story stuff and it doesn't it make you crazy. Exactly. And every once in a while I'm just taking it. I had somebody say that to me just a few months ago, just like a conversation in a bar or something with a patron. And like, well, doesn't that make you crazy? Absolutely. And, and I'm like, wow, I have to remind myself that that that's still that narrative is still out mm-hmm. there. And people who are not, again, as I said, in this world, it, it you know, it is crossed over into just broader culture of people have this weird picture of what it is. Yes. When I told people I was writing a book on absinthe, that was a lot of people's reaction was a lot of people thought it was still banned or that the ban had been lifted, but the absinthe today doesn't have wormwood in it, which of course it does. And of course the, oh, doesn't it make you crazy? Isn't that a drug? You know, I posted about <laughs> it on, um, I posted about it on Facebook and my, a friend of mine who, you know, he's a, a, a smart person. He goes, isn't that, doesn't have that have drugs in it? I'm like, yeah, no, right, no, right. no, no. It's just a, it's a spirit like any other, an alcohol like any other. But it is incredible. And that's why I am excited about the book and hopefully to help with the education of people. And, you know, because so many people, I think, maybe haven't tried it because they're not super familiar with it or they think it might make them hallucinate or might make them high. And it's like, no, it's a delicious spirit that you can enjoy in a cocktail it's, it's in the broader <laughs> anisette family uh, <laughs> like it's a lot of things out mm-hmm. there right you mentioned this in the book it's like uzo it's like several other ohen which is has a connection obviously to new orleans well let's do this uh, Mira. let's take a little break and then we're going to come back and we're going to bring this very firmly into the world of new orleans come on back All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. We are chatting all things absinthe with Mary Sanji, author of the very fine book, The Absinthe Frappe. Uh, really, it's a great read, friends. And we're, we, we've noted this uh, throughout the interview. There, we're kind of cherry picking. We're giving you a 30,000-foot sort of milepost view here of things that you need to know and cherry picking some anecdotes. I highly recommend that you read the book because it is such a richer presentation than we're able to, to cover here and you're going to learn a lot. And Meryl, you and I were talking about this uh, during one of the breaks that, you know, the presentation is really good, not only for, you know, if you're just sort of into absinthe or if you're into cocktails and cocktail history, but cultural history, art history is reflected in the book. And we've talked about how, like, if you're a bartender mm-hmm. or someone, a spirits professional, this would be, a, a, as far as I'm concerned, a must read if you want to learn about absinthe without having to go too far down into like an academic treatise, which might be a bit of overkill. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I wanted to make the book very readable, interesting. It's a quick, easy read. I wanted to make it something accessible. And I do include at the end um, an absinthe cocktail guide with different other other absinthe cocktails. If you want to experiment at home with some fairly simple but interesting absinthe cocktails other than the absinthe frappe yeah most of them are pretty easy to make and most and oh, the yeah. ingredients are actually readily available there's mm-hmm. some techniques that you need to have right we'll talk about this in a little bit when we talk about the frappe because i think that serves as a really good story to talk about presentation but let's let's talk about new orleans and and you know we've obviously talked about ted and, and lucid absinthe and so on uh and how new orleans is really the center seat for absinthe in the united states uh, but what we haven't really talked about is the old absinthe house and kind of what the scene was like here and this is prior to prohibition obviously in the band the story does yes. we're not picking up the story we're, we're setting the way back machine again <laughs> yeah. uh 
going back to the turn of the century or so, turn of the 20th century. So the absinthe frappe was invented at Old Absinthe House in 1874 by a Spanish bartender named Cayetano Ferrer. And at that time, New Orleans had a majority French population, a very large French population. And these people, these French people had a very, had their loyalty to France. So although they lived here in the United States in New Orleans, they liked to emulate everything that was going on in France. They read French newspapers, they kept their French lifestyle, everything that was happening over there, they wanted to bring over here. And that included absinthe. The French people of New Orleans loved absinthe, and that's why New Orleans became such an epicenter for absinthe at that time. And so Cayetano Ferrer, was a, he started off as a bartender at what is now the old absinthe house, at the time it was the absinthe room. And he bought the bar, and he had this idea of, I'm going to really capitalize on people's love of absinthe. And so one of the things that he did did was create the absinthe frappe, which is made with absinthe, simple syrup, club soda, and it's shaken in over ice. It's shaken in a, or stirred up when make it made really cold and icy. That's where the frappe comes from. And people loved it because you have to imagine at the time it's New Orleans, it's hot, it's humid. We all know how hot and humid it gets. No air conditioning in those days. Mm-hmm. So anything you could get that was cold people just glommed onto. So it became huge and it took off. And there was even a song written about it for a show called It Happened in Nordland. The, sh- the song is called The Absinthe Frappe. You can look it up on YouTube and listen to it. And it, 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 it was a real phenomenon. It really, it put Old Absinthe House on the map and it really, it put Cayetano on the map. His family, you know, for they, that was their drink you know they mm-hmm. made them yeah, famous right right yeah and so and this was at so and I, I screw this one up but this was at 240 bourbon street which is where old absinthe house was then we moved yes. down a couple blocks to 400 bourbon street right then it moved during prohibition because the new owners kept getting busted at here's the thing about prohibition in new orleans nobody cared <laughs> exactly. nobody was listening to they're like look this is new orleans <laughs> we're gonna drink and so a lot of these bartenders they made no they didn't try to hide it and they would get raided and they get fine so he would the owner at the time moved it down the street and because we moved two blocks away man we're gonna elude right, the cops you know you know <laughs> get it off and then but eventually it did move back to where it is today uh, right yeah. and and so that's where we find old absinthe house today correct uh, 240 bourbon street at the corner and and there's a there's a just a rich history of that building and that space yes. that we won't go into now um but uh so the I mean, it was a center seat for, as we talked about, for absinthe and the absinthe frappe, which is invented there. Mm -hmm. I also like how you shared the story because he was from uh, Barcelona, Ferrer was. So it was also um, kind of an interesting mix, right? Because you have the French culture that he's catering to with absinthe, but then he was also uh, focusing on Spanish wines. Yes, he had, he was quite the proprietor of Spanish wines and he would travel all over the country Obtain, getting these wines and bringing them back to New Orleans. He was very, he was very proud of his Spanish um, heritage and culture. But I also think that he realized, you know, these French people really like their <laughs> their absence. Right. So I'm going to add that to the 
to the repertoire. Right. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, um, so then basically this goes on and, you know, so people I'm, I'm assuming are still consuming absence to a point, but then we have the ban. So then we're not able to get it here. And then we have prohibition. Yes. So then we start in again, a bigger story for that. We're not going to get into now, but you know, the liquor, or the spirits that were available during prohibition, then we start talking about really nasty stuff in sure. many situations. And so absinthe is just kind of, a, I guess for the point here is absinthe just kind of off the board absinthe, in New Orleans for the most part. Absinthe is off the board. And so as a result, um, the substitute that was invented was Herb Saint, mm-hmm. invented by a, a newer, another New Orleanian, legendaire. And it had all the flavors and tastes of absinthe without, of course, the wormwood in it. So it was it was legal it was unregulated and right, allowed right. and to this day a lot of cocktails have herb saint in place of absinthe which i think is a little bit of a crime in a way i think herb saint has its place but when i go to a restaurant and i see a sazerac and it says herb saint it's like, it's kind of like uh. mm, exactly. and i understand why because you know absinthe is expensive right so i think that a lot of these bars and restaurants kind of want to Ease, ease, you know, they're like, okay, well, you, you'll have the, ab- the absent taste without the price. But, you know, and, and, I and, think and, that... And it's a good... I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, Mary. It's, it's, look, I'm not knocking Herb St. Like you just said. It, they don't taste the same. Sure, no. And, it's a very different, yeah, and more, very different Wormwood profile. brings a bitterness that, mm-hmm. that's important to absinthe. And I think, like, with the Sazerac, okay, because we're really talking about just rinsing the glass. Right. That, you, you know, Herb St.'s fine. It works just fine. Uh, but, like, when we're talking about the Frappe or talking oh, about some yeah. of these other cocktails... I mean, it almost kind of makes me chuckle with old Absinthe House that they still mm-hmm. serve it kind of primarily with Herb Saint unless you ask for it they with Absinthe. They do serve it. Yeah. Absolutely. They do serve it with Herb Saint. And also when they prepare their Absinthe, they set it on fire, which is also a no-go. Let's talk about this. I'm so glad you mentioned that in the <laughs> book because my very first experience, if I remember right, with Absinthe was in, in New Orleans. Of course, I had just moved here. It was 2008 and mm-hmm. I went to Two Jags. And uh, so this is, you know, a year or so after it was back on the market. Sure. And somebody, one of the bartenders there was trying to show off and did the light the sugar cube on fire thing. And right. Let's that's, talk about why that's just dumb. So <laughs> that's something that took off in my research. I discovered that's something that took off really in the 90s in, you know, places, places in Europe where absinthe wasn't banned. And again, it was just to put on a show where this uh, this sugar cube is soaked in absinthe and then it's lit on fire, which does absolutely nothing for the flavor. If anything, it kind of takes away from the flavor because now you have this like kind of burnt sugar sugar taste. Right, exactly. And that's just, you know, like I say in the book, friends don't let friends light their absinthe on fire. All you need (laughs) is, you don't even need sugar. All you need is ice cold water and absinthe. The reason why sugar was added to these old absence is because it was lower quality absence that were bitter they didn't have a great right. taste so the sugar was meant to smooth it out a little bit but really fine good absence you can add sugar if you'd like because some people maybe want to ease that bitter taste of the wormwood but these finer absence really don't even need sugar they just need ice water but no absolutely do not light it on fire and i'm very upset that Absinthe, old Absinthe House does that. You have to actually yeah. request, hey, don't light it. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that kind of and funny? And I think it's for, you know, it's it's a tourist spot now. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it's not, it's not what it was when, you know, Cayetano was behind the bar, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny you say this too, and I'm really glad that we're talking about this because, you like, at home, uh, we have an Absinthe drip. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we buy good quality absinthe and I don't add sugar to it because uh, and I tend to like things less sweet and and more bitter. And so does my wife. But um, 
I went into a place that I won't name because it's actually another place that's mentioned in the book that serves absinthe. And I had to tell them that I did not want sugar. Oh, yeah. And it, it was amazing, Muriel, how much it threw the bartender for a <laughs> They're loop. like, wait a minute, what? Well, so they didn't lose it. Oh, so they just served it to you straight up? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically they just put it in the glass and then they just dumped a bunch of water. Or I think they actually put the water in first, if I remember right, oh and then poured the gosh. absinthe in. I'm like, no, no, no. What I'm saying is I don't want you to give me the sugar cube, just, but you still need to drip it because right. I still want it looshed. Absolutely. And I was I was kind of stunned given mm. the particular place that we're talking about because they're kind of known for absinthe in New Orleans. And I was like, wait, I, okay. It's sort of like when you go to the grocery and you say you don't want a bag right. or you don't want plastic <laughs> yeah. bags, you want paper bags. And then they don't know how to bag yeah, groceries like, well, anymore. I don't know what to do now. <laughs> it's like I'm thrown off. Yeah. The um, and I don't want to knock old absinthe house. Look, the people working there are only doing what they think tourists want. And sure, that's understandable. Absolutely. It's a tourist hub, and I'm not knocking anybody. And I'm sure they're making their money, so the joke's on me. But uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't. I would suggest not. Absolutely not lighting it. Yeah, don't light it. That and, doesn't and, but add anything. Don't to light, it. but do louche. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's talk, can you talk? Tell people what that. What does that mean? Because people may not know what yes, louching it is and why it's important. Yes, louching is when you slowly drip ice water into absinthe. It releases all the oils and the essences that are in the absinthe and makes makes it cloudy. It's that cloudy presentation, and that's where the idea of the green fairy comes mm -hmm. because it swirls and it's very pretty mm -hmm. when you look when it's happening and you look at it. But um, yeah, so that's when it gets cloudy and it brings out all those flavor and it's going to be really good don't drink absinthe straight i would not no, suggest it, that it, it at changes all. the viscosity and mm -hmm. the mouthfeel of the drink yeah, when absolutely. you lose it in a pleasant way yes yeah and it lowers the abv a little bit so it's right. not as you know knock you out yeah <laughs> and it's and, and that that part of the presentation is fun Absolutely. And, and you mentioned in the book, which I think is very cool, um, you know, you can certainly go online and find stuff. We still have a couple shops in the French Quarter, for example, that mm -hmm. sell absinthe wear. Yes. Uh, and, and so to, to get yourself set up to do this is pretty accessible to people. It's very accessible. And you don't need any fancy accessories at all. You don't need a fancy glass. You don't need a fountain. All you really need is a glass to put it in. It can be any a highball glass. And ice water. And just even if you want to just slowly pour it in yourself, yep. you don't need any fancy drip or anything like that. Yep. I think people, that's another thing, I think people think, oh, it's so much work. It's like, no, you don't need a, a, fa a fancy fountain and all that. You know, I use a, a little individual dripper when I when I okay. do mine. Yep. I use a little individual dripper that you can get online for like $30, $25, $30. It's works just as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can take like, I know people that do it this way, like you're talking about where you can just get like a little mini pitcher or a measuring cup. Mm -hmm. um, just make sure the water's cold. Water right. needs to be really, really cold yes. for the proper result, absolutely. I think. Absolutely, yes. So one of the other things that you talk about in, in the book too, which is really fun uh, with, let's talk a little bit about the, the variations that you found around town here in New Orleans of how people present their frappe. Yeah, so what I thought was very interesting is when I was first researching it, I saw saw it as this ice drink that's served that's shaken with ice and served over ice and but a lot of some bars serve it straight up they'll serve it just in a little cocktail glass and I was intrigued when I went to Mr. B's and ordered an absinthe frappe because they add an egg white to theirs yeah right which is very interesting it makes it kind of on the thicker side a little frothier and it's actually a nice a nice balance and uh, some bartenders will add like some lemon to it. I've seen mm -hmm. adding a little bit of lemon to it. So it's, you can add your own variations to it. What an absinthe frappe is at the end of the day is just 
a fancied up twist on a regular absinthe. You know, all right. it is is the sugar and the water, and the only difference is it's served over ice. And so it's just, it's really cold. It's very cold. It's very refreshing. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody who's had one who's never had one before, I've had a couple of um, events, and people say, oh, it's so refreshing. It's like, yeah, yeah. It, really, it really is. It is. A good pastis is always nice that mm-hmm. way. And, you know, and, and we talked about, you mentioned club soda. Um, I, I prefer personally, I prefer still water oh, okay. to club soda mm-hmm. just because I'm, I'm just never a fan of bubbly water in sure. general. So as long as it's really cold and then I always, because I'm a pain, I always ask, you know, how much simple are you going to put in the drink? Sure. Because I always ask them to cut the simple down to mm-hmm. like, you know, a bar spoon, maybe a quarter ounce at most. And then I don't want to go past that. Yeah. That's the great thing about it. You can make it to taste. Mm -hmm. You know, if you prefer something a little sweeter, maybe not so sweet, you can just tweak it as you see fit. Right. Yeah. Well, and really quick then, tell people, um, because we did, you mentioned this, but you you do also present some other recipes uh, for absinthe cocktails. Yes. So maybe give us a couple just to... So my favorite, one one of my favorites is Death in the Afternoon, which is really simple, made Mm. with um, absinthe and champagne, which was invented by Ernest Hemingway. And another favorite I have is, and I have to look it up, The Bitter Party of One, which was brought to my attention by Ted Bro and invented by master mixologist Max Barwick, who won the grand prize of the 2018 Lucid Cocktail Classic here in New Orleans. And it's absinthe and angostura. I always have trouble with that word. Angostura bitters. bitters, Rum, lime lime juice, and falernum. Falernum. And that's a really, really good one. That's a really good one. Because that's a nice sort of melding of absinthe Europe and then Caribbean tropical tiki. Yes. I should say tropical drink, not tiki, tropical drink. And, uh, yep. And of course, you know, the Corpse Reviver and the Necromancer. And it's interesting how many tiki drinks do have a little absinthe in them. I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting. Too. Yeah, too. Absolutely. A lot of them do. And again, it's that the, the broader world of pastis, mm-hmm. I think, is kind of what plays into it. Really sure. well. Yeah. well, Mary, do me a favor uh, before we close things out here with the interview. Tell people where we can find the book and mm-hmm. tell people where we can find and connect with you online. And uh, you've got an event coming up in, in July, if, a little bit down the road. Yes. So you can find the book online um, on the LSU Press website or Amazon or really wherever you like to buy. Southern Food and Beverage Museum, if you're here. Yes, Southern (laughs) Food and Beverage Museum or wherever you like to buy your newly released books. My website is mariellesanji.com. On Twitter, I am at the Nolichick. And I have an event coming up at the BK House and Gardens on January 6th, where I'll be... July 6th. July 6th, excuse me, excuse me, on July 6th, where I'll be discussing my book and we'll be drinking some absinthe frappes. Awesome. And it'll be in signing books and it'll be a lot of fun. Really cool. Friends, it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. It was a really enjoyable read. And as I said before, and I said to you before we were on the air, Mariel, like I kept, because listeners probably know I'm fairly familiar with the story and I kept going, I wonder if she's going to say this. And it's like, check, you said it. I'm like, oh, you're going to say this? Check, you said it. You really cover all the bases, I think, with it. And the presentation is just great to go through. And it's just a really well done. I had some book. great people helping me with uh, my research. So the I acknowledgements got are fun in the book by the way oh well just because you kind of like touch on oh, sure, key sure. places and key people that are sort of like yeah that guy that gal this place you know and sure it you know it takes a village a lot of times when you're researching a book about history so yeah I was lucky and I'm lucky that a lot of um, the people are 
in New Orleans, here in New Orleans. Yep. Mm. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And also, one oh, more thing yeah, please. I wanted to add was here at the Southern Beverage Museum, we have the Absinthe Museum in the back, which is... As a matter of fact, after we're done here, we're going to go take pictures over oh, there. Perfect, <laughs> perfect, which is worth checking out because it's an amazing collection Absolutely. of Absinthe Antiques. Um, Absolutely. Very cool. Thank you very much, Thank Mary. you it was so much. Real I pleasure. Friends, a brief musical interlude, and I'll be back to close things out. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the NOLA Drink Show this time around, friends. Yeah, good to be back. Said that at the top of the show. Happy to be bringing you new shows after a good break. Uh, doing some reorganizing, some retooling, changing the format a little bit, as you can tell. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, we're still working some things out. I think some things will probably continue to change over the course of the rest of this year until we find our footing with what we're doing these days as a podcast-only show, part of the Nitty Grits Podcast Network there at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. I've mentioned that before. I mentioned that at the top of the show. Uh, I'm the executive producer of said network, and we've got some really exciting things coming up on that front. We'll be bringing you that too. Please do go check out, if you're here in the New Orleans area, we mentioned this, but uh, Marielle's got a really cool event coming up on July 6th. It's in the quarter at the historic BK House and Gardens. We said this, that's 1113 Chartist Street, uh, Thursday the 6th from 6 to 8 p.m. She's going to be giving a presentation uh, talking about absinthe, talking about the absinthe frappe, I believe uh, signing her books. Books will be available for sale, and there's going to be a very cool absinthe tasting event all part of it. If you go to our website, you'll see that first show there at the top. And in the show notes, I've got a link to Eventbrite where you can get tickets. They're really cheap. They're like five or 10 bucks, depending on if you're a museum member or not. So well worth it for an absent tasting and a terrific presentation. Check it out. Also, I would encourage you to check out the LSU Press series. If you go to the their website, lsupress.org, and then you can search by subject. I started looking for cocktails first. It's actually under bartending and cocktails. So go to the bees and you'll see it there. And uh, yeah, the there's five books currently in the series. There was one, if I'm not mistaken, that was done a while back, several years ago, on prohibition. And then now what they're kind of doing is they're putting out these really cool books like Marielle's that focus on a particular historic New Orleans cocktail. So we obviously did the absinthe frappe today. There's a book out on the Vucare. There's a book out on the Sazerac. But what I want to flag to your attention, because we did a show on this one a few months back, uh, the Cafe Brulo, which is such an interesting drink. A friend of the show and a fine author in her own right, Sue Straken, actually put that book out. And we did a really cool show. We did it over at Arno's and, you know, home of the French 75 bar and all that. And they do a tremendous, there's like a great presentation. If you dig back in our social media on Instagram, you can see it. The drink flames, it burns. It's the whole thing. But that's a really cool book. And if you just go to our website, noladrinks.com, and look for the show, you can just search for Cafe Brulo or Sue Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. You will easily find that show. So check out the book series there. It's a... I think it's really interesting. They're good reads. They're all about 100 pages, but the pages are pretty small. The font's pretty big. So like, for example, I read Marielle's book in, in about three hours, um, and I'm not a super fast reader, and uh, really just worthwhile digging into the history of some of these really important cocktails. So whether you're an enthusiast or whether you're a bartender who wants to improve their knowledge, improve their chops, or just impress your friend at parties when you make a drink and then tell them the whole backstory, this series is for you. Once again, lsupress.org. Also on our show notes, you can find uh, Marielle's Twitter and Instagram and her website too. Certainly you can purchase the book from there and get more information on it. So there you go, friends. Thanks for joining us here on the Noah Drink Show this time around. Like I said, I think 
The one we'll be doing next is our Tales of the Cocktail preview. That might change. We're running them out of order a little bit in how we taped them, as I said at the top of the show. But new shows coming down the pike soon. Friends, remember, to be kind to one another, use your turn signal, put your shopping cart up, and when you're supposed to, hit reply all. Cheers, y'all. <laughs>